When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I watched it, I thought what looked fake to me is that the this Bigfoot creature, as he's walking, he is swinging his, sorry, she, she is swinging her arms the exact same way humans do. It looked like just how you would walk if you were in an ape suit. Yeah, how I, I would walk. <laughs> Are you saying just the rhetoric you? <laughs> because you looked at me and pointed at me. When you said you, usually when you're using the rhetoric, you, you don't point at an individual. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today is our monthly mailbag episode where we answer questions from listeners about public lands, road trips, hiking trails, gear, and other travel-related topics. We have some great questions for this episode. A listener asked how we decided the order in which we would visit all the national parks. Another listener wants to know if we've ever had a Bigfoot sighting while out hiking. And a family in Florida is wondering where they could go to experience a white Christmas in a national park. Plus, a question about why trail mileage signs often differ from the distance recorded on a GPS. And a new mom-to-be is looking for some National Park baby name suggestions. All this and more coming up next. All right, before we dive into the mailbag today, we wanted to talk about a couple of things. First, some park news. Um, Starting this week, so we are at the end of June in 2023, they are reopening the Hurricane Ridge area of Olympic National Park. Now, a lot of you may know that last month in May, the Hurricane Ridge Day Lodge sadly burned down and it's been closed since then. This entire area has been closed to park visitors. And in case people don't know what Hurricane Ridge is, this is the Alpine region of Olympic National Park. It's a beautiful part of the park. There is a winding 17-mile road that takes you up there. There's great hiking. Great hiking in the summer, but also in the wintertime, really good snowshoeing. There's uh, other snow sports up there. I think they have a little tow rope, so there's a little bit of kind of skiing, snowboarding. Uh, that goes on up there. But yeah, this is such a great part of the park. And of course, Olympic National Park has so many different regions. You've got coastal regions, you got rainforests, but Hurricane Ridge is the alpine region of the park. Right. And a lot of people want to visit Hurricane Ridge, as they absolutely should, because the views from up there are stunning. The hiking trails are great. So what's going to happen, though, is this. They're reopening it. Actually, today, um, as we're recording this, they are reopening, but they are going to limit the number of cars that can go up each day to 315 cars. So they're going to open. There's a little entrance kiosk at the bottom of the 17-mile road. They're going to reopen it 
each day at 7 a.m. and they will allow 175 cars to go up. That's how many parking spots there are. And then they'll hold the rest of the cars, letting them go up whenever someone comes down and a parking spot becomes available. And why are they limiting it to 315 cars, Karen? Well, it has to do with the bathrooms, Matt, or lack thereof. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't have thought of that, but it makes total sense. They no longer have bathrooms up there because the visitor center burnt down. Right. So they have had to put up porta potties. So there is a place to go to the bathroom, but they have somehow figured out how many people or cars worth of people can use these porta potties each day before they become full, so to speak. And then I guess they will pump them out. Okay, and- <laughs> that's, that's, we're going to move on. Our next mailbag question no, comes from. <laughs> I have one more thing to say about this. Actually, a couple things. So for all of you people going to Olympic National Park this summer, if you want to go up to Hurricane Ridge, get in line at 7 a.m. or maybe before 7 a.m. I don't know when people will start lining up. But you know what else people can do, Matt? Well, you can take the bus. Yes. And it's literally a city bus. We've seen it go up there. Yeah. Yeah. We we have. It only costs a dollar. Now you also have to have your park pass. Right. Uh, to, to go up there. But yeah, just take the bus. And, and I don't think they're limiting the number of people that can go up on the bus. Or are they? You-, you know, they're not. So they said they have factored in this bus to go up and it you know makes several runs throughout the day so that's in addition to the 315 cars so people who can't get in can take the bus now it's the clallam transit bus we'll put a link in our show notes and then you can see where it picks you up and the schedule now just note this is not a park shuttle like they have at um let's say zion national park this is literally like a city bus yes and just to be clear on one point you said If 315 cars go up by 11 a.m. in the morning, that's it. They're not waiting for cars to come out and letting the next one in after they hit the 315, which is what they would do in the past. Right. It's 315 total for the day. So you want to be in that number if you want to drive yourself up there or check out the bus. I think that's a great way to go. Or can't they just have the pump trucks ready and say... (laughs) Okay, 315 or just send the pump trucks up. Yeah, I don't know. You'll have to run that by them. Anyway, this is going to last through the summer at least. I'm guessing they're going to have to do something similar to this in the winter when they start the winter recreation up there because, you know, they're not going to be able to rebuild that visitor center, I would guess, for for quite some time. Or they're just going to have to put more porta potties up there. I, I don't know. Right. So definitely check the park website for all the latest info on Hurricane Ridge. All right. What else you got before we get into our questions? Okay. I wanted to talk about a subject that no one has ever asked us about and we have never talked about before. And that is... (laughs) (laughs) I'm frightened. And that is the use of metal detectors in the parks. That's right. Well, on a recent trip, well, a, a couple of months ago, we went to a Viquime that is just south of the Las Vegas area. It's, it's what, the nation's newest national monument? It's adjacent to Lake Mead National Recreation Area. And when we were there, by the way, that's a beautiful piece of land. Yes. So we did a hike in there. And when we were there, we met some folks that had, you know, the husband and wife, the, the husband had a metal detector. And he was heading off to do his metal detector thing, and I was talking to him because 
I love metal detectors. I had one as a kid, and I, and so when I saw him, I, I chatted him up. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Before you go on, did you ever find anything valuable or interesting when you were a kid with your metal detector? I did. I found some dimes. Dimes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did not find enough dimes to pay for my metal detector. Because a metal detector, when you're like 12, metal detectors are pretty expensive. Well, but when you were 12, dimes were worth a lot more than they are yeah, today. <laughs> yeah, it took a few more dimes than I could find uh, to pay for the metal detector. I I found some square nails, but they were old nails, which is pretty cool. I that mean, is cool. Yeah, I, but I still like metal detecting. Mm-hmm. I was hoping to find a diamond ring. <laughs> I'd like you to find a diamond <laughs> yeah, ring, too. <laughs> yeah, so I, I might pick up the metal detecting hobby again. So I was talking to the gentleman, and we were kind of sharing our enthusiasm for metal detecting, but I didn't know the whole time until later when we got home and you researched this topic, you're not supposed to do metal detecting in a lot of public lands. And especially not in any National Park Service site unit. Not only is it illegal, but it's a felony. So this guy's going off with his metal detector, and and unfortunately... As Matt just said, we didn't know at the time that it was illegal in a National Park Service site, or we certainly would have told them, um, because that's what we like to do. (laughs) (laughs) We like to tell people the rules. Right. But anyway, I did a little more research, and what I found out was... It is illegal in most city and state parks. Now, as far as national forests go, it is allowed in national forests as long as there's not a chance of unearthing historic artifacts. So how old does the diamond ring have to be before it's considered historic? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I still I, I still think I'm going to get a metal detector. Yeah, I think it would be fun. But obviously, it's up to all the metal detector owners to research ahead of time and find out where you can legally use your metal detector so you don't get in trouble. Yeah. So I guess yeah. I encouraged a felony. Well, I know. And unfortunately, too, what also makes me feel bad about that is that this area of Aviquame, where they were headed, has some incredible petroglyphs, ancient petroglyphs. And there probably are artifacts there. So hopefully this man did not unearth anything like that. So that's the deal with metal detectors in national park sites. Right. All right. So much for the updates. Mm-hmm. Let's get into the mailbag, Karen. It's over there in the corner by you. Could you open it up and pull one of the letters out, out of the top of Just the mailbag? Just random? Okay. Yeah. All right. Hold on a second. All right. So this one, let me read it here. This one comes from Liz in Pittsburgh, and she wrote, My husband and I have done 10 of the national parks so far. How did you decide what order to see them in? Oh, that's that's an easy answer to your question. There was no order. <laughs> and there we, was no thought about it ahead of time. <laughs> it was random. We just went. We got a little smarter as we went. But as, as anyone who's listened to this podcast for any length of time knows, we didn't get that smart. No, we did not do our research ahead of time like we would hope that people who are undertaking this journey would do. For all of those who have read our Dear Bob and Sue book know that We started out, we thought we would do the easiest ones first, and that would be our three national parks here in Washington. And then what's so random about that is our fourth park was Cuyahoga Valley in Ohio. (laughs) Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. But it was just, it, it was a situation where we had a wedding to go to. We were actually visiting 
Bob and Sue, Mm -hmm. the Bob and Sue in Detroit. Their daughter was getting married. Since we were all the way there, we thought, well, this is about as close to Cuyahoga as we're going to come, just just randomly, right? So we decided to go over and visit Cuyahoga. But, you know, that does bring up the point that for people who are, you know, hoping to visit all the national parks, definitely take a look at when you are traveling for other purposes, like let's say a, a wedding or a family reunion or even work, take a look at where you're going and see if there are any national parks, you know, within a close proximity, because sometimes you could take an extra day or two and tack on a national park to a trip that you're doing for other reasons. Right. For instance, if you're a business traveler and let's say you have a meeting in Boston, well, that's a great opportunity to head up to Acadia. You know, if you're in Miami for other reasons, you got Biscayne Bay, you've got Everglades and Dry Tortugas. Right. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what order you want to visit them in. That's just kind of, I think, a personal preference. But it does seem like most people save American Samoa for their final park. And maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's because it's so far away. Yes, yes, it is far away. It's kind of a hassle to get there. Although I would, if I were going to do it again, I'd do American Samoa first, because then you've got the hardest done. And and then it feels like you got momentum. True. See, well, that's what I mean about it's kind of a personal preference, right? Right. Now, as far as American Samoa goes... Maybe it's because so many people visit that as their final park, but they do have a certificate. We have seen photos of people posing with a park ranger holding up this certificate that says, you know, 63 national parks completed. So that's kind of cool. We don't have anything like that. We do do not have a certificate. (laughs) Our last national park, or we thought it was our last until they created new ones, was Gates of the Arctic. And the pilot of our tiny plane didn't have any certificates to hand out when we landed at Walker Lake. We are a little bit sad that we don't have that certificate. Maybe if we write to them, they would send us one. Okay, but Liz, let's give you some practical advice here. I think if we were doing it again, I think what we would do is we would make a list of all the parks and research the optimal time to visit them. So, for instance, like Mount Rainier and Crater Lake, North Cascades and Glacier, those are all best visited in July, August, and September because due to the amount of snow they get, a lot of the roads don't open until, you know, around July 1st. Right. And and then parks like Death Valley, you don't want to go to Death Valley in the middle of, of the summer. So Death Valley, Big Bend, White Sands, Joshua Tree. I mean, those those parks, July, August, September, you, you probably want to avoid those. Absolutely. Yeah. And the Alaska parks, you're going to want to visit in the summer. And, of course, the Florida parks and Virgin Islands, you know, you're going to want to visit in the winter. And then you look at a park like Isle Royal, it's only open in the summer. So if you make a spreadsheet... You can sort of do a calendar, a long-term calendar of what months are best to visit particular parks. And while you're doing that, also note the rainy seasons. So we did Virgin Islands in December, a lot of rain, didn't know that until we got there. Uh, Also, there is a monsoon season in the southwest, so you've got Grand Canyon, Petrified Forest, like everything in the southwest. It can be rainy in August, so keep that in mind as well. Exactly. So I think when you do that, you will be much more efficient in your visits. Right. And we thought naively that we could visit all the parks in a year. Now, 
we didn't have a plan to do that. So I don't know why we thought we could do it in a year. But we got to the end of August. So we started in May. We got to the end of August. And then we realized this, that there are a whole bunch of parks that we can't get to in the wintertime. And so it turned into a two-year thing. And then I went back to work. And so that slowed us down a little bit. But yeah, you do want to... Do want to put some planning into this? Absolutely, and and another suggestion too would be some of those parks that are towards the eastern side of the country, and I'm thinking like Shenandoah and of course Acadia, and maybe even like Great Smoky Mountains and New River Gorge. If you pencil those in for October or you know in the fall, you're going to get some great fall foliage there. So again, you know we can say this with the benefit of uh, hindsight that we wish we would have been better planners and kind of figured out the optimal times to see all these places. Yeah, we pretty much wake up every day without a plan and decide (laughs) what we're going to do after our second cup of coffee. So um, odd that you're asking us for that advice, but (laughs) there you go, Liz. Uh, We always feel like people can learn from our mistakes. The last thing we want to say about this, and I think this is probably obvious, is you want to try to group some of them together by geographic area so that you can visit multiple parks in one trip, right, and save yourself the expense. That's what we did. We would sort of look at the map and draw a circle and say, okay, what parks are within this area could we visit in one trip? We do get a lot of questions about Alaska, and a lot of people emailing us seem to want to try to do all the Alaska parks at once. That's kind of hard to do. We did it in three different trips. Now you could probably do it in two. Gates of the Arctic and Kubuk Valley, those are hard to get to. Yes, I know it's a hassle to get up to Alaska for a lot of people, but for us, breaking it up into three trips, we thought that that was more manageable. And and people do it both ways. Some some people do it all eight parks in one visit and some people break it up. I think that one of the downsides to trying to do all eight parks in one visit is that, you know, some of the parks require small plane flights and those flights can get grounded due to bad weather, you know, for a day or two days or three days, and then it throws off your entire itinerary. So that is, you know, one thing to consider about that. Okay, Liz, thank you for your question. Yes, I hope that was somewhat helpful. All right, Karen, what's our next mailbag question? All right, Matt, this one comes from Steve. I love this one. He wrote, this is admittedly an odd question for mailbag. Being that you hike the Pacific Northwest often and do isolated hikes, has Bigfoot ever been on your radar? I know it sounds silly, but I'm just curious. Yeah, thank you for that question, Steve. We have seen Bigfoot several times. Gotten a couple of videos. We don't share those with people just because, you know, we don't want to be braggarts about you know, our Bigfoot sightings. Uh, had had a Bigfoot over for dinner. Matter of fact, just last week. Very nice, gentle. They grunt a lot. But um, yeah, yes, yes. So we have seen Bigfoot quite often, Steve. Are you done? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I might, I might think of something else as you're talking. All right. <laughs> Okay, Steve, so the true answer to that is, you know, we haven't had a Bigfoot encounter, but apparently a lot of people have, or or they think they have. So I was, I was looking into this, and I guess the first recorded sightings of Bigfoot, which is also known as Sasquatch, began around the 1830s. So that's a long time ago. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to... 
um, call horse hockey on the, the, <laughs> the this whole line of of information here, but well, um, that's I fine. Get- no, no, I I think this this is a fun conversation to have. Can you can you listen objectively and <laughs> and then? What it's what I do because okay, I have a lot to say about this. Okay, <laughs> all right. So, if anyone doesn't know what a Bigfoot is, it's a creature that's most commonly described as resembling a gorilla or a human that looks like a gorilla with fur that walks on two legs. And it has been attributed to our area, the mountainous western region of North America. So when I looked into it, nearly every single state has reported Bigfoot sightings, including Florida, surprisingly, but Washington state leads the country with 710 reports and 9.12 sightings per 100,000 people. And isn't there a law in Washington state that protects Bigfoot from being hunted? Well, yes, there is. There are actually two counties in Washington that have ordinances protecting Sasquatch or Bigfoot. And any other undiscovered subspecies from being killed or harmed by hunters or trappers. One of the counties, Skamania County, had noticed a lot of Bigfoot hunters coming through the area, some of them with guns, and it made the locals nervous. And one of the reasons for this influx of Bigfoot hunters was a little film that came out in 1967. And this is called the Patterson-Gimlin film, and this was shot in Northern California. So these filmmakers, and they're two men with the names of Patterson and Gimlin, they were two former rodeo men from Yakima County in Washington, and they were they were Bigfoot enthusiasts. They were looking for Bigfoot for years, and guess what? <laughs> in 1967, in Northern California... They say that they found Bigfoot. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I'm just going to be objectively skeptical. These, okay. these guys are out in the wilderness with with a camera, with a video camera. Not a video camera. It was a film camera back there in the 1960s. Just happened to have the camera out and well, yes, ready to go. They're, well, sure, because they're hunting Bigfoot and they're hoping to see him. So here's what happened. In October of 1967, Patterson and Gimlin set off for the Six Rivers National Forest, and this is in the very northern part of Northern California. They drove in Gimlin's truck. And they had provisions and three horses, and it says they were positioned sideways in the truck. I don't know why that's relevant, yeah. but I thought that was kind Just of funny. Just in case you were wondering, were they <laughs> were they facing forward or sideways when this happened? See, on the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, you get every detail, whether it's important or not. <laughs> <laughs> whether it's important or not, yeah. So the reason they chose this area, Matt, is because there had been many reports of Bigfoot sightings in the past, and people had found enormous footprints there since 1958. So they're going to this area where people have reported Bigfoot sightings, okay? Got it. Okay. Still, still open mind. Okay, good. So as their story went, they were now riding on their horses. I don't know where the third horse was, but he must be still standing sideways in the truck. <laughs> so they're each on a horseback. They're headed northeast upstream in this creek. This is the east bank of Bluff Creek. And sometime between 1.15 and 1.40 p.m., they came to an overturned tree with this huge root system. And this root system was almost as tall as a room. I just want to make sure we understood how tall was the root system. 
almost as tall as a room. Got it. So what are we talking, eight feet? And it wasn't sideways, though. (laughs) It was facing forward. Let me know when you have something (laughs) relevant to say. Okay. Okay. So they rounded this big root ball. Um, It's a root system. It wasn't a ball. (laughs) And there was a log jam left over. Apparently, there was a flood there in, in 1964. And it was at that point where they spotted a figure behind this root ball slash log jam area. Now they turned on their video camera at this point, and what they say they saw, and the film does show this, is a large, hairy, ape-like figure with short hair covering most of its body. And both Patterson and Gimlin, they differed in their in the height estimate of this Bigfoot. One said he was six feet tall. The other said he was seven and a half feet tall. So if it was legitimate, I could see they could easily have a different opinion of height because they weren't right next to it. Right. Right. So, okay. So that like that, that detail, I I don't think that would disprove anything that that they had a difference of opinion there. Good. good. Being objective. So they shot this film, which has become very, very famous. It's less than one minute long and it's, you know, pretty grainy, but there's one point as this Bigfoot is walking away from them when he turns his head and that has become that frame that, you know, that they've made a still shot from is like the universal symbol now for Bigfoot. Um, And one interesting thing, I called it a him. They're saying it was a her, and they named her Patty. And the reason they think she was a female was because she had a somewhat developed chest area. Yeah, so so they caught Patty on film, and yes. this is mm-hmm. this is proof. Now, if any of you would like to look at this as we're chatting, you could just Google Patterson Gimlin film or Patterson Bigfoot film, and you can see it. We will post a link in our show notes to this little video. What did you What did you think, Matt, when you watched the video? Did you think it was um, a hoax, or did you think it could possibly be real? I got to say, the closer you look at it, the more real it is. So I don't know. I don't think that the film itself is the problem, right? I mean, the, the film looks pretty authentic, and, you know, if there were Bigfoot, that's probably what they would look like, and I, I could even see somebody capturing it on film. The issue I have is you can't have one Bigfoot, right? You have to have lots of big feet to <laughs> to have a species. So you need males and females and you need enough of them and you need juveniles, right? You need kid big feet. You you can't just have a single Bigfoot. You got you got to have mm-hmm. a species, right? And True. if the, and if there were enough of them to to procreate, then you would have other sightings. That's true. That's a good point. When I watched it, I thought what looked fake to me is that the this Bigfoot creature, as he's walking, he is swinging his, sorry, she, she is swinging her arms the exact same way humans do. And I would think if this was truly a wild creature, it wouldn't have the same, you know, its arms might be doing something different. It looked like just like how you would walk if you were uh, in an ape suit. <laughs> how I, w- I would walk. <laughs> Are you saying it's just the rhetoric you? <laughs> because you looked at me and pointed at me <laughs> when you said you. Usually when you're using the rhetoric you, you don't point at an individual. But we so, can continue. Okay. All right. So as you can imagine, this film has generated controversy for more than 50 years now. And 
So far, no one has completely debunked this as a hoax. Now, costume manufacturer Philip Morris did come out before he died. He claimed that he sold Roger Patterson the ape suit seen on the film, and another man came forward and said he was the man inside the suit. I think it's actually pretty easy to debunk these guys' story. Well, that's what they're saying, right. Exactly. It, right, because right about the time of this film is when they were making Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. And the Planet of the Apes movie was nominated for Academy Awards for costume. And when you compare the Bigfoot film versus the Planet of the Apes costume, the Bigfoot film is a much better costume than anything in Planet of the Apes. So it would you would have to ask the question, why would someone, of a costume maker, use their absolute best costume for this Bigfoot film as opposed to a Hollywood movie? That is one of the questions that has been asked. Absolutely. And the other issue is that this creature, Patty, left behind footprints. There were clear tracks of prints that were captured first by photo, and then later they were cast. So there is a man in Oregon who has the largest Bigfoot print collection in the world. How random is that? Um, his name is Cliff Barrickman, and he was the co-host of Animal Planet's Finding Bigfoot. Currently, he is co-host of a podcast called Bigfoot and Beyond. Wait, wait a minute. Why don't we have a podcast about Bigfoot? How did we end up with one about national parks? I don't know, but I think our listeners are probably asking that very same question right about now. Anyway, Cliff has been a professional Bigfoot researcher for decades, and he's seen a lot of fake Bigfoot prints. And he says that these footprints left by Patty show a very distinctive pressure ridge on the foot, something that human feet don't have. Anyway, he thinks that uh, that it's legit a Bigfoot. So he thinks Patty was real. He does. Before we wrap up this topic of Bigfoot, I wanted to fast forward to present day research and what's happening right here in our very own state. There is a group which I never had heard of before called the Olympic Project. And this is a local group here in Washington made up of scientists who collect and analyze physical evidence that is left behind from these Bigfoot sightings. They analyze hair, footprints, and sounds. So they're focusing primarily on Washington's Olympic Peninsula, and they, um, they're they trying to either prove or disprove Bigfoot's existence once and for all. Yeah, we've spent a lot of time on the Olympic Peninsula. Th- there are a lot of people hiking in and around that area. I, I just think that somebody would have seen one. Well, that's what, that's what disbelievers say. Is that, well, truly. I'm a disbeliever. Yes, truly. That now as so many people are backpacking, right? Not just hiking, but backpacking and sleeping out. Why haven't there been more sightings if there truly is a Bigfoot? But let me just tell you one really interesting thing that they have found. Okay, this um, Olympic Project group. They received a telephone call not too long ago from the owner of a timber company who told them that he had something interesting to show them. So he took them out to this site. So what had happened was a timber cruiser who worked for the company had been driving out 
on land marking trees. And when he was out in the middle of nowhere, he came across a series of circular huckleberry branches that had been formed together to make nests, which were on the ground. And he noticed that they had been woven together. So I guess the size of these nests are pretty massive. They're over a foot deep and anywhere from three feet across to eight and a half feet across. So when this Olympic Project group started doing research online about these nests, the closest thing they could find was a gorilla nest, which was almost a mirror image, but with different material, obviously in a different setting. And just one note on that, they did have a bear biologist come out and look at these nests, and he confirmed that they were not bear nests. So you think these are Bigfoot nests? That's what they think. Yeah. And one more reason they think that? is because they collected some hair samples from there. And these hair samples haven't been matched with any known species, but they have been matched with other unknown hair follicles from other locations. Are they hair or fur? It says hair. I see. Yeah. There's a difference between hair and fur. Yeah. Maybe Patty at one time had long, luxurious hair. (laughs) So anyway, I think this is all really fascinating. And Steve, even though we haven't come across a Bigfoot, I, I like the possibility that there is one out there because I just think that we need some mysteries in life, right? We can't have solved everything. I mean, I just like the possibility that maybe there are some undiscovered species out there, even if it is a, a six-foot-tall gorilla-like creature. Yeah, we we need mysteries in our life. Here. We do. We do. <laughs> we do. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna make us t-shirts. Yours is gonna say believer. Mine's gonna say disbeliever. <laughs> and you can get those on Dirtlander.com. <laughs> All right, I want mine with an image of Patty on there. Can you do that? Okay. Is that is that some copyright violation? <laughs> I I don't think so. No, no, I could do that. All right. Anyway, I think that's a great question, uh, Steve. So thank you. For for sending that in. Okay, Karen, could you, the, I see the mailbag tipped over and spilled out. Could you oh, just yeah. grab one of those? Could you just grab one of those mailbag questions okay. and open right. it up? All right, let's see what this one says. This one comes from Sarah in Tallahassee, and she writes, Dear Matt and Karen, my husband and I live in Florida with our two grade school-aged boys, and we'd really like to go to a national park for Christmas. Where could we go to experience a white Christmas? Our boys have never seen snow before. Oh, they've never seen snow before. Aww. They're from Florida, and uh-huh. let's take them to snow for Christmas. Wouldn't that be magical? Y- yes, it, it would be. And I, and I think it's a fantastic idea. The only caveat we'll say before we give you some advice here is there's just no guarantee that you're going to travel to a place anywhere and have snow. You might not have snow. So we'll give you some ideas that increase your chances of seeing snow. Yes, but, you know, December is still fairly early for a lot of places to have a big snowfall. Yeah, it just depends on the year. So it's kind of a crapshoot. But it, it certainly would be a wonderful way to spend Christmas in the snow. So we have we have mentioned before about how we have spent Christmas in Yellowstone, and that's always a great choice, or the sister park right below it, Grand Teton. Yeah, now that's that's a pretty high likelihood you're going to have snow in those areas. Yes, at least some snow. Every time we've been to Yellowstone in December, there has been snow. 
So a couple of things you could do if you want to be in Yellowstone, you could either come from Jackson, Wyoming, or from Gardner, Montana, either end, that's the south end versus the north, and they would snowcat you into the Old Faithful area where the Old Faithful Snow Lodge is open in the winter. And you've got a great location there by Old Faithful. The visitor center is open in the winter. There are all kinds of activities to do there. Right. If you did that, you would, if you came in from the north, you'd fly into Bozeman, rent a car, drive drive it through the north entrance. And, and if you're coming up from the south, you'd fly into Jackson, Wyoming. So that would be a great thing to do. And there are activities there like snowmobiling and snowshoeing and things. So that would be fun. You know, I think the downside for that is both Jackson and Bozeman are fairly small airports. I'm not sure what that would look like coming from Florida, how many flights you'd have to take. Yeah, you probably fly into Denver and then take a, another flight from Denver to either one of those cities. Right. So that's that's our option number one. Option number two, this would be easier for you to get to, would be Rocky Mountain National Park staying in Estes Park. Right. Again, you could fly to Denver, rent a car, drive up to Estes Park. I mean, Estes Park is a established city, right? It is tucked in the mountains and it's a beautiful little town, but it's going to have facilities in the wintertime. So you, you'll be able to find a place to stay. And the park may or may not have snow, probably would. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. The nice thing about that, too, is this whole area of Colorado, obviously in the winter, they're doing a great job keeping the roads clear. So if for some reason Estes Park didn't have snow, you could drive further into the mountains for a day and let your kids play in the snow. You could always, you know, just hop on I-70 and, I don't know, go to Vail or go to somewhere where there is snow if you, for some reason, didn't luck out in Estes Park. Yeah, yeah. So that's a good option. Another snowy park is Glacier in Montana. You have a high likelihood of snow in December, but uh, there's nowhere to stay inside the park. And the roads are closed. I think Glacier is tricky because you'd have to stay in one of the towns outside the park. You can drive into that west entrance just a very short way to, to the Apgar Visitor Center and Park. And then you could do some snowshoeing and things, but you're not going to stay in the park. So you kind of lose that white Christmas in a national park feeling. The Visitor Center at Apgard might be open on the weekends, but it wasn't open when we were there, and there's no place to get food. So you'd pretty much be on your own in the park, and with the roads closed, you're only going to go as far as your legs will take you. Another option, which would be beautiful if there is snow, this would maybe be a little more iffy, is Yosemite. Now, the problem with that is when there's snow in Yosemite, chains are required, tire chains are required for your car. So let's say you flew into San Francisco and you have a rental car. You are going to have to probably buy chains unless the rental car comes with them. Yeah. I mean, that that's kind of a tricky one because if you're traveling from a distance, I think that would be tough in a rental car. I did see that we stayed once in the Evergreen Lodge, and that is in a you know a separate area of Yosemite from Yosemite Valley. I think it's maybe an hour drive away. Uh, they are open in the winter, and these are cabins nestled in the woods. That would be a very fun Christmassy place to stay. It would. Yeah. Just, just don't know how much snow that they get. Right, and the fact that you're going to need you're going to need chains, you know, to get around. So, uh, so something to think about there. Now, south of Yosemite is Sequoia National Park, and it's likely to have snow, and Wuxachi Lodge is open all year. I just don't think there's really enough to do there for multiple days in right. the winter. Right. 
I mean, you could go to Great Smoky Mountain National Park. I mean, there there's enough elevation there that you're going to have, you're probably going to have snow at the upper regions, but down where you're going to stay is not likely to have snow. Right. So you, you would have to drive up into the park to be in those snowy areas. And in some years, you might not have snow. I mean, that's much more convenient to Florida, but I don't know what the likelihood of having snow is. And our beautiful Mount Rainier, you know, up at Paradise, they do have snow. This is tricky now because this past year, they only allowed access up there on the weekends, on Saturdays and Sundays, which was a big blow to everyone who lives here and recreates up there. So for that reason, we wouldn't advise you to plan on, on Mount Rainier because I think the access to the snowy part might still be limited next winter. That's right. Yeah. So anyway, Sarah, I hope this helps and uh, that you guys find your your magical Christmas. All right, Karen, any other questions? Yes, we have two more, Matt. This one comes from Victoria in Tennessee. And Victoria just hosted her book club at a winery recently where they read our book, Dear Bob and Sue. Yeah. So thank you, Victoria, for being an advocate for our book. Yes. She sent a picture of her lovely group of women sitting around a table drinking wine, which really is a good thing to do when you read our book. Oh, yeah. Our book is so much better when you drink wine. Yes. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't even start reading it until you've had a couple of glasses of wine. Right, right. Okay, so Victoria's question is this. How accurate do you find the trail mileages to be on the park trailhead signs? Having just returned from Great Smoky Mountains, we found that our apps, GPS, and other devices all measured longer in length. Yeah, we we never have a good match between the devices we use and the posted distances. In, in a lot of cases, between different accounts that you'll read online, everyone has a different distance for a particular trail and I think uh, some of that has to do with the electronic devices themselves. Yeah, it has to do with a, a couple of things, actually. Now, one thing that you have to take into account, too, is that a lot of those National Park Trailhead signs have been around for a long time. And when those trails were measured, they weren't measured with the same GPS technology that we use. Right. A lot of times they used the wheel. Uh, literally, uh, someone was measuring the distance of the trail with one of those little odometer wheels. And so they're getting a very accurate measurement of the trail. Also, sometimes what happens is 20 years later, they've moved the trail a few times. And so now it's not exactly the same trail that they measured. And so that could change the distance and they're not going to change the sign. Okay, so how about a really quick history channel about trail measurements? A history channel (laughs) about trail measurements. Sounds fascinating, doesn't it? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Do, Do I have a choice? You really don't. Okay, for many years, trail surveyors used 100-foot metal tapes to measure distances. This method was called direct distance measurement, or DDM. Oh, yeah, DDM. Uh-huh, we we right. used that in our backyard. Yes, yeah. you know all about DDM. Mm-hmm. Yep. After that came the electronic distance measurement devices, or EDM. <laughs> yeah, I'm skeptical of EDM, Karen. 
Now, these devices work by shooting a laser towards a reflector and translating the time that elapsed between the emission of the wave and its return to the reflector. Oh, I kind of like that. <laughs> Where could one get one of these lasers? An EDM? Yeah, an EDM. <laughs> I'm not sure. But actually, those aren't very practical in heavily treed areas and train. And rough train. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of obstacles in the laser's way. Right. They need, I think they need a clear path. And then there's the wheel that you mentioned, Matt. So the way that works is the wheel size is calibrated into a counter that tracks the number of revolutions as you push this wheel along. So it's like a bicycle wheel, only it's attached to, to one arm. So a person walks and they're pushing this wheel along with their arm. And then the number of revolutions times the circumferences of the wheel results in the distance traveled. And as old-fashioned as this sounds, it's actually a really accurate way to measure the distance of a trail. Right. I mean, that that's going to give you the actual measurement because you can take that wheel on all the little twists and turns on the trail and get an exact measurement. Right. A trail specialist with the U.S. Forest Service says that in the mid-1980s, almost all the Forest Service trails were surveyed using wheels. And a trail supervisor at Mount Rainier National Park says that calibrated wheels have been the standard at the park in the past, but they're going to start changing over to digital mapping and using GPS data. So, Victoria, it's not only you who has noticed the discrepancy. And I guess what, what's been happening is I got this from Runner's World uh, magazine. And what was happening is now that so many people are using recreational grade GPS units while racing. And by the way, the, the recreational units are the things that we all use that you would buy at an outdoor store. Um, anything that's under $500 is considered recreational. And that would also be like our Apple watches and things like that. But anyway, so what was happening, people were running the races, they didn't like their time. And then they looked at their GPS and, and saw that they were actually the distance run was further than the distance that was supposed to be. So they were complaining. Yeah, they were complaining. They're saying, like, there's no way I'm this slow. <laughs> right. I, I ran much faster or further because I'm such a good athlete. Exactly. So there were so many complaints that race directors had to address these concerns. And they did a study where a, a participant walked on a pre-measured track with a GPS device that collected positions every second. And for many of these trials, the distance was overestimated by as much as 10%. And I guess what's happening is that your GPS, as it's getting these signals from satellites, it's trying to fill in the gaps in the data. So sometimes it might track you even when you're sitting still. It's extrapolating data based on the last time it pinged the satellites. So this is less than optimal in terrain in the backcountry, right? When there are um, canyons and, and heavy tree cover and things like that. So they say that the longer the hike or the run and the more varied the terrain, the less accurate your, your GPS measurement is going to be. Yeah, I thought it was interesting when that, that picture, that video of Patty, she had a Fitbit on. <laughs> and that... <laughs> Fitbits weren't uh, invented back then, so... <laughs> so that was kind of the smoking I'm gun on that one. Questioning that one. <laughs> you know, it's funny because the Fitbit, we used to both have Fitbits, what, 10 years ago? But we also noticed that anytime 
our arms would move excessively, the arm with the Fitbit attached, it would raise the step count. And it's, so I'm, I'm referring to, we had rented a Jeep in Death Valley and we took it for an entire day on the back roads. And because it was so bouncy, and I guess my arm was jiggling, that when we got home that night to the hotel, and we had hardly walked any because we were in the Jeep, it said like that I had like, you know, 50,000 steps. Yeah, and that was, that was our health routine for years. <laughs> it's just to drive around in the car. Get 20, 30,000 steps, drive to the Dairy Queen a couple of times. And, you know, it didn't help our health much, but we did get a lot of steps in. We did. We got those 10,000 steps in every single day. (laughs) Anyways, so I guess the bottom line is, you know, your GPS, whether you have a handheld GPS or you have the Gaia app, it's great for figuring out where you are in the mountains and for retracing your steps. And it's good for a lot of things, but measuring the distance hiked accurately it's not going to be 100% accurate. Right. The main purpose I use a Gaia GPS app is it tells us exactly where we are and leaves the breadcrumb so we can find our way back, uh, you know, if, if it starts snowing or gets dark or something. That's the benefit of the Gaia GPS app. The distance is just an estimate as far as I'm concerned. I agree. I will say, though, it's kind of disappointing to me to find out that they're overestimating by as much as 10% because I like that extra distance. I'd like to think I hiked that extra distance. Yeah, you also, you also <laughs> drive to Dairy Queen to get extra steps in. So Whatever it takes. Yeah. Whatever it takes. <laughs> All right. Thanks for the great question, Victoria. All right, Karen. Anything else? Oh, wait, whoa, there's whoa, there's one more envelope over there in the corner. Could you grab that? I think we have one more question. Oh, yes. Let's pull one more out. Okay. Got it. Okay. This one comes from Caroline, and she writes, I have an off-the-wall mailbag question. That's two off-the-wall mailbag questions in one episode. <laughs> that's, that's right. I, I like the off-the-wall I questions. do, too. <laughs> All right. Let me start over. I have an off-the-wall mailbag question. But we're struggling with finding a name for our baby girl who is arriving in September. Do you have any girl name suggestions that are park or wilderness related? How fun is that? How about Patty? (laughs) That would be funny. That would be really funny. Yeah, it would be so funny unless you were the kid. And then it's like the story for the rest of your life. They named me after a... (laughs) faked Bigfoot film. (laughs) Right. Don't do Patty. You know, but this is a good question because I have to say that choosing the name for your baby, and this goes for everyone in the entire world, is a hugely important decision, right? I mean, this child is going to have the name that you choose for the rest of his or her life. Yeah, it's it's paralyzing when you think about it. It is paralyzing <laughs> because you don't want your kid to be made fun of. You don't want to name them something that rhymes with something bad. <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking of that Seinfeld episode, aren't no, you? I no, know you are. No, we're, um, we're moving on, Karen. Okay, anyway, so, but it's good, Caroline, that you and your husband are giving this a lot of thought. Now, okay, so... Let me just tell you what our first um, what our first suggestion is, and I think this goes without saying that you should absolutely name your baby girl Karen. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, sign her up for uh, self defense classes. 
<laughs> yeah. No, Karen, Karen's coming back. It needs to come back because it's a great name. And just look at it this way. You know, there are a lot of really trendy names right now that everybody's naming their kid. But if you name your little girl Karen, I guarantee you she will be the only one in her kindergarten class named Karen. There, there will not be any others. Uh, and you could be the beginning of bringing this name back. So that's that's our that's our suggestion, Caroline. We we got to do better than this. <laughs> All K- right, Karen. We have a few more suggestions after the name Karen, of course. Now it's interesting because there are actually some websites out there that address this very question. So, Caroline, you're not the first person to ask this question, apparently. Um, So I was looking at some of these websites at name suggestions, and I will say, first of all, that there are a lot more boy name options than girl names, for one. Yeah, and there are a lot of names out there that we could say that we could make fun of easily, but but there'll be somebody out there who has that name. And so we can't, we, we got to be serious about this. Oh, that's right. Are you thinking of Zebulon? <laughs> well, <laughs> do we have to, do we have to go into that? We, we made the mistake of in the Dear Bob and Sue book, we wrote about, we ran across some other people hiking. They had a child that was misbehaving and they kept calling him by his name, Zebulon. And I'm like, well, that's why he's misbehaving. He's, pissed that you gave him the name Zebulon. And it took, what, it took like two days after the book was published for somebody to write us and complain that we were being disrespectful of the name Zebulon because this woman's grandson was named Zebulon. And I I wasn't, I wasn't making fun of the name. I was just saying, I just posed the question, who names their kid Zebulon? And we found out. Anyway, uh, we're not going to make fun of any names. No. However, I will say that a lot of the name suggestions that I read sounded like something that you would name your little puppy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So a, a couple of suggestions for you. One of the one of the ones I kept seeing over and over again is the name Sequoia, and we actually know we know a young woman named Sequoia, and we know someone who just recently named their baby girl Sequoia, and that's that's a cool name. I do like Sequoia. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, another name suggestion I saw, and I believe, you know, this might be more of a boy's name, but the name is Bryce. And I recognized it because if, um, and this might be dating us, but Ron Howard, remember he used to be Opie, (laughs) and then he became a famous director. Okay, So Ron Howard named his daughter Bryce. Her name is Bryce Howard. She's an actress. And I just think that's a cool name, Bryce, for boy or girl. Yeah, I like simple names. Yes. Mm -hmm. Single syllable. Yeah, That's right. Now, unfortunately, those were the only national park names that we saw that we actually liked. Well, wait, but- wait. There is there were other ones like Rainier and you could like Grand Teton. I thought that that was a good name for a girl, Grand, Grand, Te- Teton. Grand Teton or just Teton. <laughs> that, that that's yeah, if, if you're not going with Karen, go with Teton. <laughs> She'll be a popular kid at school. Uh, I apologize to everyone who just heard that. But I did want to mention there are some nature names that are quite pretty for a girl. And I'll just read these off. I actually like all of these. And Matt, you can comment when I'm done. But there is um, flora, as in like flora and fauna. So there's flora, willow, fern, daisy. I like the name Skylar. You could call her Sky. 
I think Pearl is a really pretty name. And of course, then you have Holly and Ivy. What are we now? <laughs> we now naming elves? <laughs> Name your kid after. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not going to make. I like I, both of those names. Holly and Ivy. They're not elf names. No, they're great names. All of the Hollies and Ivies out there listening. I love those names. I actually do. <laughs> yeah, no, I think those are all really pretty names. Now, one other suggestion that we would have is to think about uh, maybe cities, states, or mountains that are important to you. Like I know people name their daughters Paris, for example, or their boys Austin or Denver, you know, maybe something that has a significance to you. Yeah, like Whitefish or um, (laughs) Albuquerque. That would be a good girl's name, Albuquerque. A A lot of letters. A lot of um, syllables. Yeah, a lot of syllables. Uh-huh. But and a couple of QUs in there. <laughs> no, there's just, is there yes. more than one QU? <laughs> Albuquerque. Oh, yeah. No, I still like it. I still like yeah, it. Yeah, okay. One suggestion I have in that genre is, here's a cute name for you, Paige, like Paige, Arizona. Yeah. Uh, I think Paige is a cute girl's name. S- single syllable. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about Topeka? Joplin. We could. <laughs> you could go with Joplin. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Bucyrus Springs. My Bucyrus. <laughs> How about Bucyrus for a girl? <laughs> oh, Matt. <laughs> oh, Matt. <laughs> it's getting late into the recording. Mm-hmm. And that's why we saved this one for last. <laughs> All right. I think that's, that's pretty much it for our suggestions, unless you had anything else, Matt. Nothing I can say. I've already pissed off all the Hollies and Ivies out there, so I I should stop talking now. (laughs) Yes, you should. Anyway, Caroline, it is a really big decision. And you know what we would love, absolutely love, is when you have your baby in September, please let us know what name you came up with. And our feelings will not be hurt at all if you don't use Karen or what did you say? Or Matt, Matilda. You could go with Matilda. Um, or, you know, whatever, Bucyrus or whatever else you said, Matt. Right. Um, but let us know, and we will um, we will let everybody else know, because now we are invested in your baby girl. <laughs> all right, that's all the time we have for Mailbag today. If you have a mailbag question, please email it to us at mattandkarensmith at gmail.com. Yeah, and we will be taking a break from our regular episodes in July to do some traveling. But while we're away, we'll post several mini episodes. So we're taking topics from our past episodes and packaging those up in small episodes and putting a little bit of new commentary at the front of them. So we're going to try a a new thing out this July, having fun putting those together. So for instance, we have one coming up on the mini glacier area of Glacier National Park and and one for the Gateway Arch, and a few other topics. Yeah, it's been kind of fun to go back a few years into the archives and listen to some of the recordings that we did way back then when we were just kids. When we were babies. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Anyway, I hope you are all having a great and safe summer. And yeah, we'll be back with some brand new episodes in August.